Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. On the agenda this week, going to be having a chat about the British K-Class Submarine Project. This was an endeavour by the British in the early early 20th century uh, to maintain the iron grip they had on, on sea power around the world. And I tell you what, I just about busted up uh, reading through the details of, of this whole disaster because uh, some of the stuff that happened, you're just not going to believe it. Uh, so let's get to it, have a chat about the, the K-class submarines uh, and, you know, what went wrong and what the consequences of, of this whole thing were. So we're starting our story in 1913. And I'm sure, as I'm sure you know, at this point, Britannia rules the waves. It's not just a saying. This is not just, you know, a, a, a nice bit of poetry. This is a cold, hard fact. Absolutely no other nation on earth came close to the power that Britain could project with their grand fleet to every corner of the earth. You know, at this point as well, don't forget, the British Empire is close to being at its peak. It, it, it spans hundreds of millions of people across all corners of the globe. And, uh, of course, Britain is one of the uh, one of the great powers of Europe and uncontested uh, in, in the ocean. So this was an effort uh, by the British government to uh, maintain that power, I guess, you know, update it and, and ensure that they were going to stay further ahead of, of all of the rest of the nations on Earth. The Admiralty are wanting to increase this British sea power by designing a new type of submarine uh, that was going to be able to keep up with ships on the surface so as to fight in, uh, fight in concert with them. So the idea was instead of submarines going off, you know, lone wolf and doing their own thing like that, the Admiralty wanted to design submarines that would actually be able to, to keep up with the relatively speedy ships on the surface because obviously submarine uh, under, underwater a fair bit slower than an actual ship. Um, I guess just a, we'll take a, a, a quick detour here for a bit of naval history when we're talking about the submarine more generally and, and how we got to this stage where, uh, you know, the British are looking to make the, the next leap forward in submarine technology. Uh, submarines have been used in warfare uh, since about the mid-19th century, so, you know, 50, 60 years already. Uh, and, and they've had varying degrees of success and they've been powered uh, by everything from air pressure to electric batteries. There'd been all sorts of stuff that had tried to, you know, get these get these things going underwater. The first instance of a submarine attacking, uh, attacking and sinking an enemy ship was in 1864 during the American Civil War. It was done by the hand-powered uh, submarine called H.L. Hundley. Uh, it was a Confederate submarine, and it used a torpedo full of gunpowder that it towed behind it on a rope. Right, so you've got all the people inside uh, using sort of imagine like bike pedals, but you use you used your hands to turn them, right? And they towed a submarine behind them that they were then going to you know try to chuck into a ship. Uh, it doesn't really. I mean, they did manage to sink a ship, uh, but it doesn't really count because when it fired the torpedo and and sunk the Union's USS Housatonic. Uh, they also sank themselves. The Hunley also sank to the bottom of the Briny Deeps because it was too close to the explosion. It couldn't get away in time. And ridiculously, this wasn't the first time that the HL Hunley had sank because uh, it was actually the third time due to some stuff that had happened before. And it, the first time it, it sank was in August 19, uh, 1863 when they were testing it and it killed everyone on board. And they salvaged the wreckage, uh, brought it back up to the surface, uh, repaired it, and tried again in October, so a couple of months later, and again it sank, and again everyone on board died. The third time was not the charm, as I say, uh, as once again everyone died 
uh, when it sank the Housatonic. So H.L. Hunley, not the greatest start to submarine warfare. Uh, but, you know, as we move into the 20th century, uh, designers, they sort of start getting their, you know, they start getting a better idea of uh, how to design these things, especially in the context of naval naval combat. Um, and they put together diesel electric engines for submarines, uh, which are the same ones that are still used in a lot of uh, non-nuclear subs today, as well as some other ships and trains and that sort of stuff. Despite this, in 1915, the British, they decide that diesel electric won't cut it anymore because the submarines, as I say, won't go fast enough to keep with the surface fleet. Now, obviously, by this stage, we've got well and truly stuck into World War One. So the British are wanting to go and give uh, proper what her to those blasted Huns, what what? Uh, and as a result of this, the Admiralty, they commission 21 steam-powered submarines, of which 17 are built. It may shock you to learn, my friends, it may shock you to learn that deciding to put steam engines in an underwater metal cigar proved to be a monumental stuff-up because steam engines are not the best fit for a watertight underwater tube that obviously has a lot of difficulty maintaining a, a, a stable temperature. So... Let's, let's talk about the way they were designed, and we'll start with the good stuff. It's not actually going to take too long to get through all of that, but, you know, let's, fair's fair. Let's talk about the positives of these things. These submarines, bloody quick. They were so bloody quick, you wouldn't believe it. They had a top speed of 24 knots, which is about 45 uh, kilometres an hour, or about three and a half cubits per chain furlong in Imperial. I don't know. Um, more than enough, in any words, to match the cruising speed uh, of the surface fleet, which was only 21 knots, which is about 30, 39 kilometres per hour. This meant that they could zip along, surfaced, right, with the Grand Fleet and then duck down underwater during a scrap and encircle enemy ships that were trying to flee. Uh, so the idea was, obviously, they would, they, would, they would cruise along with the Grand Fleet and then sort of flank them or, or, or entrap any ships that were trying to break away from, enemy ships that were trying to break away from the Grand Fleet and, uh, and you know, provide a huge strategical advantage just, just because of their speed alone. Now, those are the good things. As I said, wasn't going to take very long. Here come the problems. Strap yourselves in. We're going to be here for a while. Uh, there are about half a million of them. So the first one is the speed. They're, they're very quick. Fantastic. But it's also an enormous issue because a surfaced submarine would barrel along so fast that its bow, the front, would be pushed underwater and the crew had to use ballast tanks. You know, like those little jet things that George Clooney had in, in gravity to go zip, zip, zip around in space. They had to use these little jet propulsion ballast tanks to adjust their bearing. Basically, the submarine was so fast that they couldn't control properly the direction it was going in, and, and often the nose, the, the bow, I don't know why we're talking in about noses in submarines, would would go you know under the water all over the place. So that was you know a, a, a detrimental effect of the speed. The other thing is these submarines are huge. They're, they are bloody enormous. You've never seen anything as big as these. They're over 100 metres long, which was so much bigger than any other submarine at the time. The problem here, this is what's really funny. The problem here is that the maximum diving depth of these submarines, despite the fact they're 100 metres long, they can only dive to about 60 metres deep, meaning that while diving, the bow, the nose, I guess, if we're going to just continue on in that vein, the nose of the submarine could be below the maximum depth while the stern, the arse of the submarine, was literally above the water. So if they dove too quickly, because of their great length, they would simultaneously be surfaced and at their maximum diving uh, capacity, which is ridiculous. On top of that, right, on top of that, the controls for the K-class submarines were so rubbish that they couldn't even control their depth or bearing very well at all, even while, you know, submerging themselves slowly. 
essentially it was like driving an 18-wheeler with a bloody Mario Kart Wiimote, essentially, was how much, you know, handling you had. You pick DK and put yourself in the buddy buggy and you've got no chance. So despite, despite being quick as a freight train, these things are about as agile and, and dexterous as, well, yeah, as a freight train. And they're about as useful as a freight train once they're submerged as well, as we'll, uh, as we'll discover as we continue to talk about their problems. The next big issue with these submarines is how many holes they had in them. Now, you might think, why are they putting holes in a submarine? And they shouldn't be there. And you you would probably largely be right. But these holes were by design. These holes were put in there by the designers. They had holes for all sorts of reasons. Obviously, torpedoes had to come out. Uh, people obviously had to get in and out of the submarine. They didn't just put them in and then you know seal them up like a, kin- a tin of beans or something. But most of the holes were actually exhausts for the stupid, idiotic steam engines that they'd bunged in there. So... This means that the already Bowser-like handling of these underwater metal burritos was terrible. The holes made it a lot bloody worse. On top of this, in rough seas, seawater could actually enter the exhausts of a, of a surfaced submarine and put out the fires in the steam engines. And on top of that, it made it even more dangerous... Uh, because more holes obviously meant, meant only more opportunities for valves and ports to you know make to to stuff up and not close and let in water and then obviously it's all over Red Rover when you've got a flooded submarine. So rather hilariously, these stupid oversized nautical bananas took four minutes to submerge, four minutes to get underwater by by the time all of these valves and holes were closed up properly, which is obviously more than long enough for them to get blasted to bits by an enemy vessel. So it was a real issue. But we haven't even talked about the biggest issue here, the, the real problem, the one that really undercut them completely, gave them absolutely no chance in the long run, was the fact that they're powered by steam. The fact that they were clumsy death traps because of their steam engines. A steam, engine's, a steam engine is enormous. It's huge. I mean, think about the ones that they have, you know, on on trains or in the in huge big old ships and whatever else right they're enormous and the reason that these k-class submarines were so enormous so heavy and so huge is because it's mainly due to the fact that they had to fill to fit, fit these whopping great steam engines inside them now here's an interesting piece of trivia you probably have you probably don't know steam engines also generate something that isn't exactly ideal when you're again in inside a watertight metal cigar heat and lots of it. So these engines, they generate so much heat that they couldn't have anyone near them while they were submerged because they'd just get roasted alive. And so they had to run unattended, which then, as you can imagine, caused all sorts of other knock-on issues. It was an absolute disaster. These were some of the most poorly designed uh, you know, pieces of machinery since they decided to put an ejector seat in a helicopter. And I can't, you know, it, it's unbelievable that they thought that this was ever going to work because all of these things in concert meant that the K-class submarines, they were death traps. They were death traps and, and the stuff-ups, they began to flow thick and fast once they finally hit the seas. So much so that the K-class submarines got the nickname Calamity Class, Calamity like a, you know, with a K, uh, which is obviously a bit of a rubbish dad joke, to be honest. But I mean, you know, it, it does get the point across. So it, it's got that going for it. Anyway. Let's go through the major incidents that took place with these huge, big, giant, faulty metal bananas. We'll we'll kick things off in May 1916, which is K3. It's the first of the 17 submarines uh, to be built. 
And as soon as they whack it in the water, they realise they've made a huge mistake, as it was immediately obvious that manoeuvring this thing was like doing brain surgery with a battle axe. When they tried submerging uh, this submarine, they realised how long it was going to take. As mentioned, they could get it done about under five minutes, four to five minutes in an emergency. But if it was done as per spec, it took about half an hour. So rather optimistically, the claim was made that they were so quick when surfaced that they didn't need to submerge to evade an enemy threat, in which case, just build a ship, mate. If you're if you're not going to use a submarine to go underwater to evade a detection or evade threats, just build a ship. You don't you don't need the added functionality if you're not going to use it. Anyway, so K3 goes on the old maiden voyage doing a test dive in December 1916. And the dive is, unsurprisingly, an absolute nightmare to control. And the sub goes down way too quickly, burying its nose in the mud at the bottom of the water, which is only 50 metres deep. This means that the K3's ass, I think it's actually stern, that the maybe we'll try to use some proper naval terminology here rather than nose and ass. So the stern of the K3 is sticking up above the water, the propellers proudly whizzing around. Um, now, luckily, there are no casualties, uh, but the future, get this, the future King George VI is actually on board this maiden voyage. So it's pretty bloody embarrassing for the British because they've just put, you know, their, their future king, essentially, in a great amount of danger, uh, putting him in this, uh, in, this, in this death trap. In any case... And after all this, the new submarine fleet, it's launched all the same, and it begins to operate alongside the surface fleet. So this, on top of all the stupid rubbish involved in their design that we've talked about, culminated in some of the most foolish and embarrassing events you'll ever come across in naval history. It might not be the most obvious thing in the world, but running submarines alongside surface vessels is actually a pretty bloody stupid idea, as it endangers both the submarines and the ships even more than, for example, an enemy vessel would. Submarines and ships are not good bedmates. They're not designed, they're not meant to, you know, to actually sail in concert with each other. Anyway, let's get into some more specific incidents here. The first of which was on the 19th of January, 1917, when K-13 is being tested out in Gare Lock in Scotland uh, with about 80 people on board. She goes down to dive and, surprise, surprise, one of the half a million holes doesn't close properly, meaning the engine room and the torpedo room get flooded. This results in the entire submarine sinking to the bottom all the way down 15 metres underwater. Not, not all that deep, that, you know, at the end of the day. Seeing as the draft of the sub, the height of the sub, I should say, uh, no, draft, well, again, we're going with a, with a nautical terminology. The draft of the sub itself is only six and a half metres. This, you know, so descending uh, 15 metres down, they're, they're, you know, only eight and a half metres from, from the surface there. And it'd actually be pretty bloody funny if the British didn't completely stuff up the re rescue operation. The people on board, they're trapped down there for two days before the sub is finally dragged back up to the surface and held up by some barges. 48 people uh, are rescued, while 32 die. So it is, it is actually quite sad and, and does result in, you know, a senseless loss of life, which is, I guess, par for the course when it comes to the British fighting World War I. Anyway, the next day, uh, obviously hungering for the briny deeps, the now empty K-13, it breaks free of the barges and sinks to the bottom again. Luckily, no one is, is on board this time. Now, this time, it's not dragged up straight away. It's dragged up a few months later. They just leave it sitting at the bottom of Gear Lock for a couple of months, 
uh, and then eventually is salvaged and repaired and renamed K-22. Now, that's not all for K-13 slash K-22. It's heavily damaged a few years later in the Battle of May Island, which we'll get to in a sec. That one, oh my goodness, that's, that, that is the, <laughs> the apex of this entire journey we're going to go on. It's also not all for Gear Lock, interestingly, because both K-12 and K-16 managed to stuff up and sink themselves to the bottom as well, but fortunately, they're able to surface hours later after they repair, you know, they repair the errors themselves on, uh, on, on board itself. So, so, you know, happy ending there. Anyway, the next one is K4, which in January 1917, which to be honest is not a good month for the K-class submarines, manages, if you'll believe it, to run itself aground. Imagine this, a submarine getting onto, you know, it's read The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin and it's onto this, you know, it's decided it's going to make a bid for the bid to become a beast of the land. It's going to evolve to the next stage of its life um, and it ends up stuck on, a, uh, on, on this beach for months and months and months. And that's not all, because in November, K-1 manages to smash into K-4 while patrolling the Danish coast during the First World War. Now, fortunately, uh, the entire crew survived. They're, they're, in fact, rescued by K-4 after it had obviously decided that it wasn't going to make it, uh, you know, as a beast in the field. Um, uh, and obviously also pretty magnanimous of K-4, seeing as they've just rammed the bastards on K-1. Anyway, the sub itself, uh, it was scuttled by the British, so it didn't fall into the hands of the Germans. So this was obviously not a particularly fine end uh, to that, that particular su- chapter of the story. So for those keeping score at home, by the way, that's two subs sunk without seeing any action. We haven't even talked about enemy vessels just yet, and we've already lost two subs. So the, Brits, the British are 0-2 down. Anyway. The Battle of May Island uh, comes up next chronologically in, in 1918, but we're, we're going to skip that for now because, as I say, absolute gut buster. We'll come back to that at the end. In 1921, after the First World War was done and dusted, the British, they're going to run a training exercise, a mock battle in the Bay of Biscay. On the way, K-5 signal, signals that she's going to submerge and does so, and was never seen again. Exactly what happened to K-5 has never been conclusively determined. The theories go that she pulled the old K-13 and sank because some of her holes didn't close properly, or perhaps she exceeded the maximum uh, safe diving depth, but unfortunately this time there is no rescue and all 57 on board, uh, people on board are lost. Or perhaps some people say they became the new kings of Atlantis. Probably probably not the kings of Atlantis, probably just dead, unfortunately. Anyway, score update, they are X and 3. The British, 3-zip against them. The very last of the K-class submarines was to, that sunk uh, was, was K-15 in, in June 1921. <laughs> this one wasn't even on the open sea. K-15 was moored in Portsmouth, just chilling out in the harbour when the hot weather got the better of her. So obviously the British, in the grand tradition of their country, built even their military hardware unable to cope with heat. Due to the weather, the engines lost pressure and forced some of the vents to open, which then, of course let in the water and flooded the sub and sank it. So, just to recap, this submarine was parked in the harbour, just sitting there and still managed to sink. So we're now at four zip, and again, this is all without even seeing an enemy vessel. There were so many other incidents as well. K2 suffered an explosion and a fire during its first uh, couple of test dives, then collided with another submarine years later, H29, which sank during a different trial. The British were... Just absolutely out of luck when it came to submarines back then. Anyway, K2 then went on to disappear while patrolling the English Channel in in 1917, reported as lost with all hands, then turned up unannounced and was nearly attacked by the surface fleet because they didn't know what was happening. Um, uh, Another one was also uh, K7, which was uh, patrolling the English Channel 
and was in fact attacked by the surface fleet, being depth charged by destroyer, the destroyers that it was accompanying. So a, just an embarrassment of mistakes here, a, a, just a comedy of errors here by the British. Let's talk about the Battle of May Island, which, as I said, took place in 1918, because this one, the biggest stuff up in the whole K-class saga here. It wasn't actually a battle. We call it the Battle of May Island. It wasn't actually a battle. It's called that by people who are kind of taking the piss a little bit, because, again, not a battle, as you'll see. It was, it, rather than a battle, it was a series of huge disasters in early 1918, uh, while part of the surface fleet was making its way from Scotland to the North Sea to, to meet up with the, the British Grand Fleet. I guess, you know, we're kind of making fun here. Maybe we shouldn't laugh about it because 104 people died. But actually, then again, we've actually laughed a lot worse in this podcast. So, you know, we'll, we'll whatever, we'll just go with it. So there are a whole bunch of, of ships sailing along with nine K-class submarines. They set off on a big overnight trip on the 31st of January 1918 uh, with all the ships and the subs uh, forming a big long line, big convoy of ships there, uh, nearly 50 kilometres long. They were being very, very sneaky about it, again, to avoid the Germans and their U-boats. Uh, so they maintained radio silence, and each vessel only had a small light on their stern. And obviously, the, the, the vessel behind it would follow that light, and, and, and so on and so forth, all the way back to the back of the convoy. Anyway, the front of the convoy, they turn around May Island, and they start zipping along when the blokes at the front spot two lights on vessels approaching this huge, big naval convoy. Now, they all start to turn away to avoid these, uh, these vessels, which were probably minesweepers, uh, except for K-14, whose steering jammed up. They eventually get it fixed and try to sail back in line with the rest of the convoy, but in the confusion, K-22 has also lost track of the convoy and ends up ramming into K-14 while K-14 is trying to get itself back in line. Now, at this point, a battlecruiser named Inflexible rounds the island and runs straight into K-22, ripping it in half and well and truly living up to its name. And of course, this is the beginning of an enormous nautical pileup because other ships begin rounding the island and have to start making emergency turns to avoid hitting this huge pileup of ships. And as you might expect, the crews of K-14 and K-22 radio for help so that the vessels that were ahead of them, they start to chuck a Yui to come back and sort them out. But this only adds to the already ridiculous crowd of ships and submarines near May Island. So when the scout cruiser Fearless rounds the corner, she slams straight into K-17. K-17 goes down like a sack of spuds, although a lot of the crew managed to escape by jumping overboard. So now, Fearless is just sitting there, stationary, again, trying to effect some kind of rescue for the people that are over water, and more ships begin to round the island. They again have to make more emergency turns to avoid collisions. Now, the battlecruiser Australia... A, tr a, a bloody ex extremely well-named vessel, I have to say, um, almost hits K-12, which zooms out of the way to dodge, but, oh no, now K-12 is about to hit K-6. K-6 reacts quickly, quickly and gets out of the way of K-12, but in doing so, rams straight into K-4, nearly cutting K-4 in half in the process. K-4 is absolutely scuppered and sinks with all hands, and while she's sinking, gets hit by K-7 just for good measure. Really, really teach those K-4 mongrels a lesson. Now, at this stage, there are a bunch of blokes in the water, as I said. They've jumped overboard to avoid the carnage. But unfortunately for them, all these ships in this massive convoy continue to round the island and just run them straight over or chop them to bits uh, with their propellers, which obviously increases the death toll even further. But check this out. In an hour and a bit, the British lost two submarines, had four more heavily damaged, along with fearless, but not as inflexible and Definitely not bloody Australia, mate. Australia, of course, best ship in the world. This whole thing, of course, 
was kept an enormous secret for the rest of the First World War, and it wasn't until 2002 that a memorial was finally built on May Island. So, again, for those keeping score at home, I, I mean, I've actually lost count at this point, but we've had half a million submarines sunk, and again, we haven't even talked about how they did in battle facing off enemy vessels. What, what was incredible about this story from a broader perspective, is that the Admiralty, they stuck with the K-class submarine project until 1923, when the final sub, K-26, was built. Most of them were actually scrapped by, by 1926. K-26 was the final one to go in 1931. So they didn't last very long. And I've, I've talked about, you know, all of their failings. I've talked about all the adventures that they, they went on and all of the disasters they perpetrated. But let's have a chat about the finest hour of the K-class submarines. Let's talk about the time that they nobly and valiantly engaged the enemy. Of all of the K-class submarines built, none actually ever did this, with one exception, one exception, the finest moment of the K-class submarines. K-7, as mentioned, was patrolling the English Channel in 1917, protecting the White Cliffs of Dover and the noble people that live on the British Isles. And there it came across. (gasps) What's this? A German U-boat. They swiftly launch an attack at top speed, firing a torpedo towards the Germans, who were obviously coming to to wreak havoc and ruin upon the noble British people. The torpedoes sped through the water with the truest of aim, this mighty phallus being the culmination of centuries of British seafaring dominance, and then bonked harmlessly off the side of the U-boat without even exploding. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the British K-class submarines. It is a chapter of naval history that I think the British would rather wasn't discussed too heavily. So, of course, as an Australian, more than happy to bring it up and rub their noses in it. We're going to uh, wrap up the show, of course. Uh, I just want to remind people that you can jump on Twitter and find uh, at half Ass History without a, without a, an O. Uh, wouldn't fit with the O, very annoying. Um, you can find the just daily history facts that I tweet out every day. I just From the reading and stuff that I do, you can go, go and get across that, as well as announcements about new shows. I've also set up a Patreon, and I, I, I tell you what, I'm floored by the generosity and kindness that... Uh, uh, that people have been showing with Patreon. I do very, very much appreciate the support. It's uh, it, it is, it's very, very humbling indeed that people enjoy this silly nonsense every week. Anyway, not going to waste your time with any more any more stuff. Of course, final thing, if you want to get in touch with the show, send us an email. Best way to do that, history at gmail.com. If you want some stickers, I've been sending some of them out. Just send me an email with your address and I'll send them to you absolutely free. Don't worry about uh, any money for that or anything else like that. That's fine. We're going to close out the show, as usual, with a question posed on Reddit this week coming from Run DNA. A very good question, this one. Obviously, we've talked about British seafaring and we've talked about the names of the ships, obviously the Australia being the best named ship in the world. But Run DNA wants to know, why was Queen Elizabeth II named after a ship? <laughs>